0: This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's School Reform News Podcast. I'm S.T. Karnick, a Senior Fellow and Director of Publications at the Heartland Institute. The executive president of one of the nation's largest teachers' unions is under fire for the revelation that her eldest son attends a private school. Why is that a problem? Teachers' unions universally oppose school choice programs that include private schools, and in doing so, they deny education opportunities to children whose parents cannot afford to pay for them to leave the deteriorating public schools. This is an especially troubling problem in nearly all the nation's big cities, where the public schools are plagued by poor student achievement, disorderly behavior in classrooms and other facilities, disastrous teaching methods based on ridiculous fads and politicized curricula. Denisha Allen, a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, and founder of Black Minds Matter, joined School Reform News to discuss this problem. Welcome, Denisha.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. uh, It's an honor, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Now you recently wrote an op-ed which was published at Heartland Daily News about a teachers union official who sends her son to a private school and teachers union strongly oppose uh, that for everybody else. Could you tell us about what that story is? What's the news there?
1: For sure. So Stacey Davis Gates made national news when she was interviewed um, on CNN talking about her position on school choice. Uh, like you mentioned in the intro, it's you know, common sense that the the National Teachers Union oppose education freedom, oppose private schools, believes that every kid must go to their zoned public school, and there's no no skirting around that. Um, and news came out that she sends her son to a private school but opposes those same opportunities for other parents. Now, she's the president of the Chicago's Teachers Union, and she's also executive president of the American Federation for, for Teachers, which is the national organization. Um, and during this interview, you know, she's really getting grilled by the interviewer and asking her, well, this it really doesn't make sense that you oppose school choice. But you send your kid to a private school, and in this interview, she went on to say, "You know, there are not a lot of high quality neighborhood schools for black kids, and in black kids in these schools." Uh, you know, basically need options. They need a dream, not reality. And so she's talking in the sense of, you know, these public schools and urban districts, high black uh, uh, kids might be high poverty, need some real reforms. Uh, And that's why she doesn't send her kid to to a, a public school, but she chooses to pay out of pocket for a private school. You know, it's so hypocritical because the same families that's trapped in those schools don't have any opportunity of leaving like, she's able to do because they don't they can't afford to pay out of pocket. They don't have that same opportunity. And to oppose a, a, a scholarship, a voucher, education savings account, whatever the, the bill is, to allow for those kids to escape out of those environments is quite is quite sad. And so Yes, she made headlines, and as a beneficiary of school choice, um, we decided to to address this and to write about it.
0: Thank you. You you attended a government-run private uh, public school as a child. Uh, So what was that like, and how representative was your experience of the education, so-called, that inner-city children generally get and have been for about the last couple of decades or more?
1: Well, my experience going to my local zone schools were, I would say, very... uh, a a real good picture of what most of these schools look like i went to about five different elementary schools growing up and most of them were about the same you know they're full of kids that come from the same type of background um concentrated in in these buildings and when i say that we were pretty much all poor we were lower income concentrated in, in a building with kids who are just like us and it the same skin tone. Yeah. But that wasn't really the, the biggest, um, the thing, the biggest thing, the biggest things were we were all poor we weren't diverse in the sense of socioeconomic status or anything like that. And the teachers were, um, they had so much going on to try to help address our needs. Um, and, I failed the third grade twice being in these learning environments because I couldn't read. When a teacher would call on me, they would sigh like, okay, Denisha, and skip over me when I stumbled over words out of frustration. Okay, well, we'll just go to the next student to finish this passage. Those, that was the type of learning that I had. And when we look at Um, When we look at the statistics of national reading scores, only 13% of, of black kids nationwide are reading on grade level. But then we look at, in, in Chicago, you know, uh, the, the NAEP scores, the Nation's Report Card shows us only 9% of black kids are reading on grade level. And so my personal experience in, like, like yeah, government schools, I don't believe is that far different from what a lot of other kids across the country are facing. Because we, we have the, the data to, to show that they're not reading on grade level, not doing math on grade level. And there are little things that the public reformers are proposing that'll make, that, that's going to make true difference. Um, the difference factor in my life, and that's making a difference in a lot of other kids' lives, is school choice, education, freedom. I went from making D's and F's, believing that I would become a high school dropout like my mom and my uncles and a lot of other people in my family, to not being the first in my family to graduate from high school, receive a bachelor's and a master's degree, and go on to be an uh, advocate for school choice, saying it's nothing special about me. The only thing that I had that a lot of other kids don't have is freedom in education.
0: The, what you point out about the, the makeup of the students in your school, that they're mostly poor, that they're mostly black uh, in, in that school, and that's true in uh, schools all across the country and in inner cities, we were, we were promised a long time ago that the schools would all be uh, integrated and that the students would get the same opportunities as one another. What happened?
1: you know after brown versus board i think we have we had such high hopes for that um and we based our our you know, we put a period or stamp of approval on being done with reform after Brown versus Board. We thought that integration was the answer. But the problem was not that black kids and white kids were being educated together. Yeah, that was a part of the issue. But the main part of the issue was resources and that the same resources that flowed to one school did not flow to another school. And we have that persistence still today um, and we continue to have that even after Brown versus board um, and we have not broken away from this inequitable uh, education model that we continue to um, to have and so I actually don't think that Brown versus board should be you know highlighted as just a, a monumental um you know, uh, excellence type of education reform. Yeah, it did its duty, but we still need education reform today. And a lot of people on the left, a lot of people who are liberal and progressive, Democrat, whatever you want to call it, they they tout Brown versus Board as, you know, being loyal to the public school system because we had this type, we had this legislation passed. I went to an all-black private school. And I don't think many people, you know, know that or understand that about my story. My school was started by my my childhood church. My pastor was a woman. She, a black woman, said that it is our duty as a church to educate our kids and to raise them up in the fear and admonition of Jesus Christ. And so she started a school. And that school was all black, (laughs) You know, all black kids. I think maybe one year we had one white kid and he skateboarded to school. But for the most part, it was an all black student population. And I would I would go on to say the most diverse student population that I had ever been. And, uh, around, you know, before my schools were all the same, we looked the same, and we came from the same background. I then started going to this private school that had students whose parents were doctors, lawyers, business owners. Um, you know, they were in uh, run in uh, state the state legislatures, city council, um, they were professionals. You know, it, it runs, the, they served in ministry at our church. And so it was a very diverse group of, of students and the sense of we didn't all actually, we may have had the same skin tone, but we did not come from the same background. And with our current system of how we, 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 z- force kids to go to the school that's in their neighborhood we're indirectly caught creating segregation and if brown versus board was supposed to mitigate that we've not done a good job at uh at achieving brown versus board
0: so what happened was the that people simply moved to create their own uh, kinds of neighborhoods that would affect uh, what uh, what the children would be surrounded, what what other kind of children they'd be surrounded with at school. That's right. Now, um, you say, okay, so you went to a private school. How did you do that?
1: Oh, yeah. So I did kind of cut off my success. <laughs> so, yeah, I went from making D's and E's to being a high school graduate, going on to receive a bachelor's degree in my master's degree. Um, and I, I realized that I was not a failure, that the public school system had just failed me. I went from making D's and F's to A's and B's the first nine weeks at being at this new school. And it wasn't a social promotion. It was really the, the true dedication of the teachers and the staff. They met with me one on one because I was reading so poorly and not doing math on grade level. I didn't know my times tables going into the sixth grade, and um, so they met with me. I ended up skipping a grade. I could have, you know, got into my right grade, but I was a little nervous. Um, and it was it was amazing. I because of the school, because of the environment, I began to love to learn. I began to love um, education. And that's something that I couldn't say in my my other schools.
0: And this was by way of a state scholarship program? What is the Florida Step Up for Students?
1: That's right. Um, That's by way of step up for students, which is uh, it was when I benefited from the scholarship. It was a tax credit scholarship. Now, Florida has an education savings account, um, which allows any student in the state of Florida to have a scholarship to pay for their learning needs. Um, And when I was taking advantage of the scholarship, it was a means tested program for lower income students.
0: I see. So when you, uh, so did your parents have to apply for the scholarship and, uh, was it, was it easy to do or was it complicated and what's the difference? And, uh, has there been some evolution or development in this area where it's easier to get these, uh, vouchers now or however you want to call them this help?
1: Yeah. Um, that's right. I, my godmother applied for the scholarship, and I was awarded. It was a, I think it was a seemingly easy process. I moved in with my godmother at the age of 13 the summer, and I started in the fall. Uh, because she applied for the scholarship, I got accepted and started at this new private school. And so I want to say the process was fairly, fairly easy, fairly simple.
0: You went through uh, into the the private school and your aims and your thoughts about what you could accomplish changed. Um, How did did that happen specifically? Like what what kinds of uh, uh, interactions with teachers and staff or with your parents, uh, other people? uh, How did that lead to your your sort of changed mindset about your own abilities?
1: Yeah, I remember vividly, you know, I was not that great in, in reading. And my teacher would would call on me without me raising my hand to read. I should I should probably point that out. <laughs> and she would stick there with me. She would I would be crying, hyperventilating, just so stressed out. Please move on. Please move on. Could stumbling over words. You can sound them out would be her, you know, retort or, you know, she would just stay right there. And I would look around the classroom and no kids were laughing at me. You know, no kids were exhausted that I mm. am taking so long to read something that probably would have taken another kid like five minutes, you know? That was my, the beginning of my mind shift and my mind change in, you know, toward school, toward education. Before I was, I was used to teachers like, oh my gosh, let's move on to the next kid. <laughs>
0: well, that's very interesting because we often hear, that the reason that test scores are so low in uh, p- uh, public schools and government-run schools and especially in the inner cities is that the parents don't uh, – they don't do enough. They, they don't prepare their kids for school and so forth. What you're describing sounds uh, different from that. It sounds like –
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can't – you know, my godmother at the time, she had a full-time job. She was, um, she was a physical therapist, um, and I – I can't to, to be quite honest, she did not help me as much with my learning as, you know, maybe I have a one year old and I'm reading to him constantly, you know. She didn't do those type of things, you know, with me. Now my biological mother absolutely did not do those things with me. But I'm I'm but my godmother, the thing that she did, she trusted my education in the hands of people who she knew could teach me, who could give me a quality education. Um, at the same time, which is, um, I started at an after school program called the Police Athletic League. And so during the day, of course, I went to school. After school, I went to an after school program where I received tutoring. If I received, you know, help with my homework, there was a designated homework time, so there was no opportunity for you to just keep that homework stuffed in your bag. Um, so, she created this ecosystem for me to get a high quality education, and. I hate, oh, man, it gives me, I just I just cringe when I hear those folks in the legislature say those types of things. We just had someone in Texas um, say those same things. Like, how are parents supposed to know what's good for their kids? And these little poor parents are not going to, you know, be involved in their kids' life. To, it's the parents' fault that their kids are dumb. Basically, that's what they're saying. And I, I hate that so much because... In every other aspect of our life where we have this freedom of choice, we trust experts with our services, with our, and we trust that they're going to do a good job. If we took our car to a mechanic and only 9% of the cars worked after we left the mechanic, you know, we'd stop going to that mechanic. Or if we had the same thing with cars, if the car... Only had a nine percent success rate of running. We would be. We say no, but nine percent of the black kids in Chicago know how to read. Fourteen percent of the. Uh, wait, let me get the right. Uh, yeah, fourteen percent of the high school graduates in uh, all of Chicago know how to read. So I think that that's that's really concerning. And we don't have this sense of urgency. We are playing the blame game. And we just really can't be loyal to an outdated, failing system. Not to say we 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 have to do away with it. There is no doing away with a system so big as the public school system. You know, that's not logical. I wish we could, but I don't think it's logical. The logical explanation is to give parents freedom. There's a lot more innovative school environments that kids can go to and let a parent choose which is best for their kid. We've seen in Florida, Florida has the largest and one of the, one of the oldest, um, School choice programs in the country. They, there, there's been a lot of research around the program as well, and so now we see, based on on uh, on research, that the students who've gone to private schools have, um, who went to public schools, gone to private schools, taken advantage of the scholarship, are performing twice as like twice as better as their public school counterparts. However. The students who stayed in public schools also saw an uptick on their um, on their academic outcomes. So that's to say, this when we implement school choice programs, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. It's not just going to benefit the students who "quote unquote" leave and flee the public schools, but because maybe those class sizes are a little bit smaller, because. Teachers are a little less stressed out. There are more dollars to, you know, go to a small group of students. The public school students are able to get a higher achievement as well. And so I think we need more. We need more opportunity. We need more choice. It's never been a success in our democracy to limit people's options, and we can't start now.
0: A key thing here seems to be that the... Uh, the opposition is not so much to private schools as such but religious schools you know you you uh, say you had very good experience with a religious school and it sounds like what you're describing from the teachers that helped you is, is that there was uh, an important that was an important factor in you receiving the kind of care that you needed could you tell us your thoughts on that and what you've seen from the science out there
1: Yes, yeah, so I yeah, I went to a faith-based school and um yeah, many schools that are private. Um we have there some of them are non-secular, but a big uh, portion of them are are faith-based. They're attached to their church or the diocese and they are doing this out of mission, out of service. Um it's more than just providing an education for students, which is important, but it's also making a well-rounded individual, grounding someone, grounding the child in something that's bigger than them. And, you know, I think that especially when it comes to the opponents of school choice, we oppose that in the k-12 through 12 space but we don't oppose it in other aspects of life like in the daycare the early childhood or in the college collegiate level we give state sponsored uh, federally funded daycare vouchers to parents and allow them to pick their church based um, daycare or the government daycare you know we don't we don't force parents to choose to go to a government-run program in the early childhood space, the same thing goes for for the um, the collegiate level. We give pale grants uh, to um, uh, people of a certain income. Um, at the college level, those funds come directly from the federal government. Most of these school choice programs are not even coming from the same pool of money as, you know, public school funds. But the federal government, those monies are coming directly from the federal government to Families to a, to individual people, and those individual people get to choose which college or university they want to go to. They can go to William and Mary's, which is a faith based school, or they can go to a, their 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 city school. They can go to a uh, they can go to a a vocational school. They can pick whichever learning environment best suits their needs and their interests. And there is no conversation around that being inequitable or that defunding one system above another system.
0: The, uh, it's interesting that the, um, the system that funds, sends government money to uh, pre-K and to colleges and universities is so different from the K-12 system uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is the is that the results uh, of the uh, higher education had been pretty good for a long time. They've they've uh, been deteriorating in recent years, um, and it, but it, it does seem that there the the difference in the ability to have a, a different kind have some different options. On the higher education level, and now in the pre-K level, is advantageous. Um, one one of the things about the, the using that funding mechanism of having the money go to the parents that makes it uh, all right with the First Amendment, doesn't it?
1: That's right. That is exactly right. It is our it is our right as an individual, and in the K through twelve space, those rights have been really infringed upon.
0: Yes, absolutely right. Well, it seems to me, isn't it true that, that they say it's true that public schools are very underfunded and that the solution is to all these problems, that the, the children will get better uh, education if uh, we send more money to the current system. Is, is that accurate? Are, are they underfunded? Do they receive less money per student than private schools?
1: You know, I definitely do not think that public schools are underfunded in Chicago. Um, the average, kid, the on average, they're getting about eighteen thousand dollars per per year per kid, and so that's that's a lot of money. And I guarantee, you if you stopped a random parent, because we've done this actually, stopped a random parent on the side of the street and say, "Hey, do you know your kid's getting eighteen thousand dollars to go to that school?" They'd be like, where's that money going? 18 where? Can I get $18,000? I will educate my kid better with $18,000 than I think they're doing. And teachers, we don't see where that money is going. Teachers are, you know, spending their own money on things like pencils and construction paper, glue sticks. Why? When the average kid is getting $18,000, you know, and we do, we say, oh, teachers, teachers need more money. Where is the money going when the average classroom in America has about 30 kids? And we're like, make the classroom size smaller. So let's do the math. So we have $18,000 per kid per year. Average class size is about 30. That's $540,000. $540,000. Per so,
0: classroom. Per classroom.
1: Per classroom. Thank you. Per classroom. And that's not the average. That money is definitely not going to teachers' salary. Right. If teachers are saying, okay, we're getting 70, 70 80K maybe on a good day. And then they can't pay for pencils and crayons and construction paper. Where is all that money going? It's not going to the kids. And that's the problem because our system, even if we had an equitable system, even if we had an equitable system of, of public education, the money is not going to the kids. Like that would still be a problem, and I don't think people realize that. Like, even if we we had a you know an equitable system, the money is not flowing to the kid, and we're meant to fund students and not systems. Well, at five hundred
0: forty thousand dollars per classroom, and the kind of the kind of results we're getting, which are right. absolutely awful, it just is it purely that the public is being deceived about this and we're ignorant of what this taxpayer money is buying?
1: You know, I think we are, and I think we need to have more of a sense of urgency um, and why Yeah, platforms like Heartland and what I'm doing with Black Minds Matter, more people need to stand in, in, in Chicago, the black of collaborative, the black of I think it's called the Black Collaborative or something like that, you know, to do more work like that, because the more we talk about it, the more we discuss the inequities in the system, the, the more people will stop and listen. You know, COVID was devastating, but one of the silver linings of COVID was that many parents did wake up. Many parents were forced to educate their kids at home, and they saw that their kids were not getting a high-quality education and that their monies, their tax dollars, were still flowing into a public school system that was not educating their kids the way they thought that they should. And a lot of parents said, no, thank you. We we can do this better. There was this, you know, um, new creation of schools called micro schools. And these were started by, you know, parents uh, and Teachers, a lot of teachers woke up and said, hey, I actually don't have to be attached to this system. I can make a living by being an education entrepreneur. I can start my own micro school. I can start my own learning venture. I can become consult. And the sad part about all of that is, you know, now we have this nationwide teacher shortage. And if we don't fix the education system of course, we want to fix it for students, but if we don't fix it fast, we're going to lose a lot of our workforce. We're going to lose our teachers, also, um, and they are running to you know they're running to alternative programs like charter schools and private schools because they have more freedom, they have more flexibility to actually teach kids. And so, we need to fix it for a myriad of reasons. But the number one, the constituents in education, the students. The parents and the teachers, um, they're begging for something more. There's
0: no question that teachers union leaders, the entire education establishment, and big media are standing in the way of choice. They're refusing to let children across the country have a chance at a better life through an excellent education. They're all on it. They're all in on it. But doesn't it seem that it would be, given what you just said, Wouldn't it be actually to the long-term benefit in particular of the teachers unions who drive this? Wouldn't it be to their benefit to, to, to go, uh, to, to support school choice, to open up their, uh, open up their, their space to other options than government schools so that as parents ha- have heard more about what's going on in the schools and become very disenchanted about it, and they want to move their, their children to other than their local government school, as that happens, the, the teachers unions are going to lose uh, support and lose uh, teachers. They're going to lose the, the, the money that they get from those teachers. So wouldn't it be to their advantage to, 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 to look into support for choice?
1: You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it would be a very smart business model to support those teachers in private schools and in charter schools, you know, instead of fighting so hard to keep those options from existing. But they are profiting off of this very antiquated and failing system that we currently have. And so they're not... Um, you know, they're not listening to their constituents. They're not listening to the needs of parents and students. Um, they are, you know, they, they're supporting this monopoly. And it is, you know, it is sad because the they're fighting so hard, but we fight back. And we've seen, um, you know, 26 states now have uh, uh, ESAs and they're scared out of their wits, you know. Right now, we're we're fighting in Texas to get this passed. and yeah, Illinois needs to have a more expansive program. Um, and so it's it's been proven that parents want this. Parents are not going to back down. Um, they support uh, they support school choice um even you know they'll they'll go so far as to sue every program that's passed and each state supreme court continues to side with parents and so it, it's just really a matter of time um before they're brought down um they keep spewing the same talking points you know um uh, po- uh, school choice takes money away from public schools school choice is racist school choice is this school choice is that um school choice doesn't benefit it actually doesn't benefit black kids uh that it's it's old it's and you know people are are waking up they you know and it's the same people who are spewing the talking points um yeah it's always very funny when we go into state legislatures um to have people to testify on behalf of various school choice bills right and it's always the same picture big burly adults on one side saying no we don't want this they say that they're teachers but they clearly are not in the classroom during working hours and on the other side you have parents and students pastors community leaders who are saying we want this we want this we went we want more school choice and so it's yeah it's it's always very funny because you have the union heads you know always fighting against it fighting against the constituents the people
0: you mentioned esa's those are education savings accounts and they're uh Increasingly popular item uh, in states all across the country. Can you tell us a little bit about what ESAs are and why you support them?
1: So an ESA, and yeah, acronyms, Education Savings Account, um, is a new, fairly new form of education freedom, and it gives unrestricted, I would say, dollars to parents to use on educational needs. So. Before, we had tax credit scholarships and vouchers, um, and those monies could only be used on tuition and fees, Um, and the school could use those funds for school books, but the money went from the parent to to a private school in order to pay for mostly tuition. Now, with education statements accounts, we have where parents can use that money, yes, on tuition, but they can also use it on say my kid needs an ipad but to do their tutoring program they can use it on tutoring services they can take it to a uh, kumo or you know their kid um has a certain um special needs and they want to use it on horse therapy say for instance now these education dollars can be used on educating the kid and whatever that might entail um and i think it's I think it's amazing, this unbundling of services um, as it relates to education, and it does put pressure on the education system as a whole to really define how much does the goods and services from uh, public schools, from education models, cost. What is the true cost of that? Because now, if you have... A student who say he is homeschooled and receives an education savings account but wants to take one course at their traditional public school well how much does that one class cost and so we have this you know model this new um funding of education that could really help define the funding um, around, you know, public education and education writ large. And so I, I actually do like it. I support it. Um, I think it's a very unique and um, amazing thing to create more innovation, too, in the space.
0: We at the Heartland Institute, of course, uh, very strongly support education savings accounts and, and multiple other options uh, for uh, helping children get an excellent education outside of the current system. So what is the American Federation for Children? What do you do there as a senior fellow?
1: So the American Federation for Children, we're a national uh, school choice organization, the largest in the country. We work in all three areas to help get school choice legislation passed. So we have a PAC, and we just announced our super PAC, um, called the Victory Fund. We also have a 501c3 and the 501c4. And so we're working on all areas to change the narrative around school choice, to create more options within the legislature to propose um, high quality bills, but then make sure that the right people get in office um, to. To, to flip houses and incentive to and create um, meaningful lasting change and my role at AFC I'm senior fellow um, I, I run our one of our strategic initiatives called black minds matter um, I founded this initiative in 2020 when the time of racial reckoning happened when the after the murder of George Floyd and everybody was looking into their internally at their systems trying to figure out oh are we equitable are we equitable is this racist is that racist we were more concerned with changing aunt jemima which is a pancake and syrup uh box than correcting the dismal outcomes for black kids in this country and i was i was very bewildered and frustrated at that and so i coined it put it in an op-ed and that op-ed kind of morphed into the strategic project that we have today and that's what my that's what my role is
0: well, thank you, Denisha, for talking with School Reform News today. How can people contact you?
1: So, you can get in contact with me at the American Federation for Children and at Black Minds Matter. So, you can follow us on social media, blackmindsmatter.official. And yeah, we look forward to having you, seeing you and connected.
0: Thanks again. Our guest today was Denisha Allen, a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children and founder of Black Minds Matter. Thank you, Dinesha. Thank you, listeners, for joining the podcast. Please leave a five-star review at whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast. Follow me at ST stkarnick on social media and visit heartlanddailynews.com for the nation's best news coverage and commentary on public policy issues. This is St. Karnick for the Heartland Institute's School Reform News podcast.